This is Season 6, Episode 6, Hand to Ground with Emily Sims. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Meg. It's a real pleasure. I wish we were kind of doing this in person, but um, our schedules don't seem to align very often. So we'll pretend that we're sitting having a cuppa side by side overlooking your beautiful valley. Um, That's what I'm going to imagine. Yep. We've both got our windows that we're sitting next to. So we are connected. We are. We're looking at the same sky, not too far Mm -hmm. away from each other. And I'm in um, our little office that we rent, which is lovely, but it is also, as all of my interviews, there will be noise of, you know, the laundrette next door and people talking and that's part of life will be happening Mm -hmm. around me, as I imagine it will you. Yes, it's the same here. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about how's your day been? Yeah, it's been a good day. Um, We were so fortunate last week to get away for a week off the farm um, as a whole family. It was the first time in four years that we've had a real break um, from farming where one of us hasn't stayed back to look after things and it was so refreshing. We went down to the coast and the boys just swam in the ocean even though it was cold and I just sank my feet into the sand and breathed in that salty air so I think I'm still a bit buoyant from um, being able to have had some some rest time some really good rest time I can't even imagine what type of magic you had to conjure to make that possible because even on our very small very small property we find it really difficult as well to get away but I'm so glad that sounds yeah so regenerative yeah yeah and it is hard and I think I mean maybe we'll get to this later but it's a funny thing that um, in the farming world or if you've got a property or you have animals or a small holding or something that you look after, you often feel like you, you can't leave it. You can't get away. Um, you can't have that break. But it's also so important to have time to just refresh yourself and maybe even detach from it so that you can come back with fresh eyes. And, you know, I say this and it's taken four years, but <laughs> it's really important. <laughs> It is so important. I think it's it's also um, I find it as well. There's another there's another complexity to it where I think I think I need to get away more than I actually do though. Like I feel like mm. it's so important, and at the same time, I think the last two years for me has taught me how much joy and nourishment I can get from it and so Mm. I think whereas before there was this desperation to escape I think when you do become embedded in place and you do start to know the land and you start to work with the cycles and the seasons of that particular land Mm. in that particular year like there is still so much nourishment or there's so much stimulation I think that can come from staying and Mm. I don't know do you know do you know what I mean yeah I I do I I think you're 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 right that um you know in a sense if we're doing it right (laughs) and we are being um attentive to when we need to rest or we need to sort of be in sync with um our bodies in this with the seasons you, you don't need as much time off or time away as you think you do but that's so difficult, isn't it? When you've got small kids and you're running a business, oh it, it can be hard to know how to have that balance. Um, it is. And, and it, yeah, it doesn't have to be a whole week away, but I think it's important to have those little moments, even if it's for a day or an afternoon where you, you can um, play and take off the work hat or take yes. off the um, farmer hat and the and, um, hat and just the carrying of the responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I totally yeah. I think yeah. I think what I realised over the last few years, I didn't articulate it very well, is, is more like just how being local is supportive. Like I used to have to go a long way from home to feel nourished or regenerated. Mm. I used to have to mm. go and seek out a new experience or have some kind of hedonistic 
experience, mm-hmm. new consumer experience in order to feel that rejuvenation and that regeneration. Whereas now I actually find it's, I don't need to go very far. I don't need to drive hours and hours. I don't need to, you know, I don't need to go for long periods of time. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that balance of knowing, I always I always pull the pin way too late and I'm always burnt out. I totally, I think it's a balance. But I'm curious, like, for those that don't know how, so you've been four years on this property and how did you guys move into farming? Like how did that journey evolve for you? Yeah. So we've actually been two years on this property um, and prior to that five years on another property uh, about 20 minutes away. And before that, um, we spent a year actually as interns on another farm property, um, which is about another 20 minutes away in the other direction. And that was the beginning of our journey into farming. So it's been, I worked out this spring, it was eight years that we've been Um, that Alex, my partner, and I have been farming as our full-time job and vocation and um, passion. And we came at it very, very randomly. Um, You know, we both have very different professional backgrounds. So Alex's background is actually in fine arts, um, painting and sculpture and media. And my background is in um, community services and immigration. Um, And uh, we actually, we met in Sydney, that's where we're from. And we decided to spend two years living in France um, together working for a satellite television channel. Um, So that's kind of a bizarre beginning, but it was while we were doing that that we realised we weren't, you know, when you do something and you realise that it's not the thing that you should be doing, Mm -hmm. that was out and we had our first baby. So we had that lovely um, pot of, uh, of interesting and beautiful things happening. And we just thought, we, we want to be doing something else. We want to be doing something together. We want to be working together as partners, um, but we want to be using our hands more and we want to be in the ground in some way. And I think it was when we were in France we first discovered um, uh, Joel Salatin, if you know mm-hmm. him, people, mm-hmm. and Alan Savory's work on holistic management and grazing, regenerative farming and we just thought, oh, I wonder if there's someone, if this is happening in Australia, I'm sure it is, where it's happening and could we go and, you know, on our way back home from France, could we actually visit um, a farm that's put into practice some of these ideas? And it just so happens we came back via Melbourne to Sydney and we had a spare day and this farm in Woodend, um, Taranaki Farm, had an open day. And we went along to it with our one-year-old in the carrier and we went on this tour and and were amazed and inspired by what Ben was doing on the farm. And we just, you know, right at the end said, so would you be interested in having a family come as interns, (laughs) (laughs) knowing that he'd probably say no? And I think he did look incredulous and was like, a family, that's crazy. Um, So we just sort of went on our way back to Sydney not knowing what we were going to do. And it was maybe a week or two later that Ben actually called us and said, how soon can you start? Can you come back to Victoria and um, start being interns here? So we did that. And um, we were so lucky that at that point we weren't locked into work. Um, We didn't have a mortgage or debt that, you know, we had to pay off. So we, in a sense, we had a lot of freedom to just do something really radical, which was become a family farming. And, um, yeah, that was the beginning. It's such a good story. And I feel like Joel is mentioned so often on this podcast yeah. that I feel like he's almost become a third party in mine and Dave's relationship. Yeah. Like he doesn't know we <laughs> exist, but Joel is often name dropped and his book is often just yes. left around the yes. house in different places. So mm-hmm. his influence yep. is far reaching. And, and yeah, I love that what you said about that there was, um, that there was this movement and this instinct within you and then there was the that bold, courageous move to just say, well, why not, you know, ask 
and uh, put ourselves in that position of potentially not potentially not eventuating but being open to the possibility that it might I think that was our experience that break from coming back overseas or really enabled us to stop Mm. uh, to 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 really discern what ways we wanted to opt back into upon re-entry and what Mm. life we wanted to opt back into so I'm really curious do you did either of you have farming roots in your family like is it something that is brand new in your kind of lineage or was there ancient wisdom that resided in your body somewhere that started coming back to life during this process? Yeah, um, not not immediately, certainly not for Alex, um, though in my family I've now discovered that I have a lot of farmers. Um, so both my mum and dad, although they moved to the city both grew up on farms and their parents farmed and their parents farmed. So maybe it, yeah, it just took a jump um, from my parents to me. But I, I certainly feel like on both our sides there was a lot of, um, you know, maybe that pioneering spirit mm-hmm. um, and certainly a thriftiness and Alex's um, mum and dad lived in Africa when he was born and his mother grew up in India and, you know, there's in his family a lot of travel and a lot of living in different places and maybe being adaptable to um, being out of your comfort zone and being exploring and and open maybe just to different ways of living and being. So I think we've both inherited that in a way um, mm. and maybe also a sense that we feel... Um, content to have a simpler life which means a lot less um stuff and a lot less money (laughs) but uh if right from the beginning I think we just felt a kindred spirit there between us that we could make our life beautiful um without having too much um money or too much stuff so that's something that we do return to although it's difficult when you have children and you do have costs um in a business to go, well, that's not our motivation. There's something under that that feels more purposeful and, yeah. Mm, It is so purposeful, I think, at this precipice. Like I've been having a lot of conversations this season in particular about inflammatory diseases and health systems and food systems and, Mm. you know, I think there is nothing more purposeful right now than folks really heeding that deep call within us to dig our hands into the soil and to grow something of nourishment and to let that thing of nourishment be part of a broader system change like I think it's it's never been more important and I I just have so much um Dave and I often talk about you guys <laughs> quickly <laughs> about he has grand visions of being a farmer and, and we kind of, that transition for us takes, is taking longer than he would like, I think, as mm. we try and unmesh ourselves from different systems and ways of earning money. But there's these little experiments that we've been doing around like, you know, rare breed hens this year for example mm-hmm. and I'm just so curious how we can generate these little pockets of resources seasonally that can sustain us and yeah and also just experimenting with living with a lot less this year it's been a really interesting phenomenon but I'm I, I kind of want to pick up the story where you left off and hear what happened next so you spent a year with Ben Taranaki which is an incredible farm in and of itself where you must have yes. learned so much and then how was that year and then what happened subsequently yeah, um, oh, that was, it really was incredible to be able to go from, um, you know, really zero farming experience to waking up at dawn to milk the cow with my little toddler. I would sit him on the milking bench and he'd just watch me and then just want to lick the, <laughs> the big oh, pitcher full of milk. Um, sounds very idyllic, but it was hard work. And yeah. then... Um, and you'd be covered and, in poo and, like, it's, and, oh it's so gosh. not the image and of the milkmaid, is it? No, and have a cow step on your foot and all sorts of fun things. <laughs> um, we'd, but we learned we were able, because he had at that point... Um, a milking system, a chicken system for eggs as well as a meat bird um, system, 
cattle and pigs, we were really given a lot of opportunity to manage each component. And, um, and that was fantastic because it meant we almost got a window into what it could look like to have all those systems, you know, the Joel Salatin polyface model with all of those things happening together. Um, and that was amazing. But I think at around the eight, nine-month um, mark, Ben was just shifting towards um, needing a bit of a different season and we weren't able to continue on as we thought we might. Um, but that, again, was another catalyst for, you know, taking a plunge to see what happened next. And we'd made friends, quite a lot of friends in that time who were in Kyneton and around Woodend and that area. And one family in particular um, said to us, you know, we've got this 30-acre block that's on our property that we don't utilise. And if you wanted to try getting something set up, you are so welcome to to use it, to lease it free of charge you know, free of charge, just in exchange for the produce, some produce that you, um, that you get from using it. And we just went, oh, we've got to, we've got to take this opportunity up because land is really hard to come by. Mm -hmm. We didn't have, um, the means to purchase. So we thought, all right, where, how can we start? What part of that system that we learnt at Taranaki could we replicate from scratch in our own way? on this land um, and we thought chickens would be a really good place to start. So we started with um, the laying chickens in their mobile hen houses, eggmobiles as we like to call them, and we used reclaimed materials. We made everything mobile so that if we had to leave, we could take it with us. And um, we also started the meat chickens and some beehives. So that was our starting point. And it was a really exciting but also really daunting because it's one thing to start raising animals on a, on a scale to have produce to sell, but then you've actually got to sell it and yeah. find customers. Um, so I did a lot of, you know, dropping off samples at cafes and restaurants and, you know, getting into the farmer's markets and um, that, that was really a, a difficult and wonderful season to just find our customers, almost to find find the people who understood why we were um, farming the way we were and to value that process, um, to value the animals, to value the seasonal nature of it, but also to value the true cost of that food as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of education um, involved, more than you'd think, <laughs> to to kind of, you know, to get people maybe changing their perception. And chicken's a really interesting one because I think for a lot of people, chicken is the cheap meat, it's the mm. cheap protein, it's the staple. And the thought of having to pay $30 for a chicken when you would normally get it for, I don't know, $8 or something, a whole bird, um, was just crazy. And lots of people just think, I don't understand it, but when you talk them through the process of raising that bird um, from the beginning on the pasture where it's living on the grass or it's eating whole grains where it's being moved every day where it's got sunlight and all this care that requires time and then to process this this bird um, as well as you can and then to bring it to market that's actually a luxurious item. It's not a, a cheap um uh, you know, fill up for your table. It could actually be something that's precious that you want to savour and um, make a feature of. So, you know, that was just one little eye-opener for us that there was a lot of education and storytelling that had to come with with the produce. Mm. It's, and it's so interesting because we're selling live birds and the thought of uh, a, to a point of lay hen, right, a mm -hmm. barn of elder or a, uh, we've got some black copper marins at the moment and some mm, Belgian. Beautiful. 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 <laughs> Gorgeous. These chicks from hand, you know, yeah. in our house, in, inside our house they are. And, um, to take an 18-week-old bird who's going to give you X number of years of eggs every day 
and to think about the future of that, you know, animal and how little they're valued. It's like it so speaks to me of the extractive kind of consumer model that we have of like I get this bird, I want it to do what I want it to do and every day and like, you know, there's no reverence for this bird and mm. the reality of, of all the care that's gone into raising it, of like this thing that's going to give you life and nourishment and, you know, precious things like choline within the eggs and, you know, these things that you can't mm. get from anywhere else, this bird mm. is going to give you and yet we, we see it as a body that's expendable just like anything else. And I think even with meat birds, it's the same. It's like it's a it's the throwaway culture of like I'll get what I want from it and then chuck the rest away, whereas you're right. Yeah. Have reverence for the process and we have reverence for life. It should be savoured and it should be respected and our farming practices should should acknowledge that as well, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think you you naturally want to use it all of it that you can possibly when when you when you have um when you have more value for that animal you want to the meat bird in particular you want to get everything out of it you you don't just want to eat that one meal you want to make broth you want to make um terrine from the you know from the necks you want to make things from the offal, you know, there's this sense of wanting to do justice to its life, mm-hmm. um, honouring it afterwards. And and that was something else that I guess we, we learnt that I didn't expect before we started farming, that actually the more we spent with our animals, it, the more we wanted to, the more we appreciated the gifts they gave us mm-hmm. um, without making that sound twee. It didn't put us off eating meat but we certainly just started to eat less and less because, um, you know, that was just what happened and we had a lot of other things growing. But when we did eat it, we appreciated it and we um, valued it. And it's, um, you know, you are confronted with that that reality that things do die in this life, um, but that doesn't mean we don't have to, you know, that we can't honour that process and, and still get some nourishment um, from that cycle. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I'm, um, I'm curious about when you started, did you, was it a massive upskilling in terms of using your hands, in terms of I um, imagine the marketing side of it was massively upskilling, but also on the physical side, did you build the, coops did you build the mobile Mm -hmm. coops yourself and how did you go about learning how to do that because that's something I think is a massive challenge for us is like we're just not very good carpenters oh my goodness yes it's I (laughs) I hear you um it's it was really challenging I mean thanks again to Joel he's got some wonderful books that walk you through the process um we built our pens we built our beehives um when I say we, it was mostly Alex, and he will actually tell you that he thinks his sculpture, <laughs> his oh, undergrad oh. in sculpture, and he's always been very handy, but he will even say, uh, and I'll say it as well, how much we wish we, we you know, learnt more physical skills or mm. trades when we were even younger um, because although we've been able to do it, it has been slow, much slower than if we could buy it ready-made but that was part of our limitation was that we couldn't afford fancy um, eggmobiles like you can buy now to have chickens outside, you know, made of stainless steel and roll away nest boxes and we couldn't afford that. So we had to build it by hand or use recycled things. Um, and, and maybe by doing that we were learning skills that we had to start learning slowly mm-hmm than if we'd been able to just click our fingers and purchase those things, um, we wouldn't have gone through the, yeah, the, the difficulty as well as the value of, of learning something yourself um, and maybe embodying that resilience of persevering and um, giving, it, giving it a go. Yeah, we've certainly I'm, made lots of mistakes, lots I of wobbly bet. pens. <laughs> I bet, but also... Um, 
how much the process is enriched by that. Like we often talk about, oh, if we had a, had ready-made irrigation on, you know, the property and uh, if our neighbours had have had irrigation and, like, you know, water is such a big thing for us. But yes. it's like those, yeah. those problems that you have to solve as you grow, I just don't think there's as much satisfaction in getting the instant gratification of like having thousands of dollars worth of irrigation and having the mm. excavator build a dam when you can't click your fingers and you know all of mm. these things that mm. yeah you can replicate permaculture principles with a lot of money very quickly mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. they take re- a really long time you know yeah yep. and I think I there's something see. in like I don't know there's some wisdom of nature in that in that we can only grow as quick as 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 the natural world which does take time you know mm. yeah yeah I'm I'm learning the older I get, the more I appreciate my limitations in a way because they teach me so much about um, what I can do, um, what I, um, I may not be able to do yet, but there will be some other thing that, you know, is possible and beautiful in that season, but it can't be all the things. And it is hard. Like I think in this day and age where we have uh, social media and we've got this window into so many other um, stories of people around the world, around the country who are starting beautiful businesses in the regenerative space. It is easy to feel envious or to see what someone else is doing and to say, oh, if only we could do it that way or if only we had the capital for that or a property in that place or whatever it is, to be always looking in at what what someone else has or is doing rather than going, well, what's before us and what can we make with what we do have available um, that will nourish us or at least um, be aligned with what's sustainable in, in this season. And that's, that's really difficult. I remember thinking lots of times um, just... <laughs> It's, you know, if we had our time again, we probably wouldn't have timed starting our farm business with also starting a family (laughs) or expanding a family because, you know, we had three, uh, we had two babies, two more babies um, in those first years of starting up the business and to have three children under five and, you know, chickens that you had to sell for market and eggs you still have to clean and pack and deliver every day and... Um, and in that space, uh, maybe five years ago, six years ago, Alex um, herniated a disc in his back as well. So he's like, he started, decided he, you know, farming is his thing. It's his vocation, so happy. And then his back just, you know, gives out on him. And he had, it took about 18 months of really intense therapy um, to recover to recover his back and we had a baby in that time and so I think where am I going with this that there were times I thought we are absolutely mad like we looked at our friends who were starting farms and farming businesses and all their kids were grown up or they were teenagers and could help them or they were adults or you know they'd had other jobs they had other financial security um and I thought yeah that that's probably a wiser way to go about it but here we were and and we'd begun something, um, but it was it was definitely challenging. Definitely so much more challenging than than the Instagram, you know, beautiful um, expression of it that we were sort of showing the world. There was there was a a very messy and difficult reality as well. Yeah, I. I often say today that it's like sometimes it feels like there's this really easy route and then there's this really hard route and we can do really Yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, so many yep. years have at least one person in employment and here mm. we are, both of us, you know, and then homeschooling and then yes. now taking on yes. property and, you know, and it's like but we come back to why, you know, the why we're doing it. And I think when you come back to that purpose in it and the meaning in it and, and that we want to show the very real messy embodiment of 
regeneration, not just the aesthetically pleasing mm. homestead parts of it. Yes. Know? I think yeah. that that's actually what regeneration is. It's, it is in those struggles when everything in the ecosystem has needs and it all needs to be met now and that somehow life mm. finds a way to figure mm-hmm. it out. You know, I think we're the same. Our families are the same. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Yeah, and I feel like I love what you said that we'd started something and you really had and have and continue to. So I'd love to hear kind of what happened next. And did you, did that place have a house on it that you were living or were you driving out? No, we, no. So we, we were very lucky that we could rent a little cottage that was as close as possible, but it was still a 10-minute drive. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't just walk out to the animals which was something that um, was not ideal um, and it meant that you know if vehicles broke down we were (laughs) in a pickle a number of times but I think what was beautiful about that time when I reflect on it was um, just the community of farming neighbours that we had so even though we were quite isolated um, geographically, like we weren't close to town, you couldn't walk to anywhere really, you couldn't even walk to someone else's property. Um, we had the most beautiful neighbours and many of them quite, you know, getting on in their age but had, you know, fourth, fifth generation farmers of this area and had all this beautiful wisdom um, and knowledge that came from living in a place through so many seasons from um making farming work through all the adversity as well. And there was one, there's one person in particular that comes to mind. And I remember him saying to me, um, and it was after we'd had a terrible fox attack um, and actually lost 90 meat birds in one night. And it was just a devastating loss, not just financially, but just emotionally to lose those beautiful birds in that way and um and he came over and was sort of just you know checking in and and he said to me how he had to when he farms he has to hold everything with a light hand Mm. and I often think about that idea of of holding lightly not letting go and just you know um letting it all go away and giving up but also not gripping so fiercely that it's painful and it's um, taxing it's like this in-between tension space really hard to do but here was this man and he had this those sort of eyes that smile that sort of twinkle and I knew that he has suffered um, in many different ways in his life but I thought yes there's something about that whole that faith in things working out or you know yeah almost like a space that he just made within himself as a buffer (laughs) to to the farm and um and I yeah it's been that was an inspiration so that time was great we we needed that input and that community that came from being the crazy young people you know city slickers who knew nothing but in a way we didn't mind that you know, we were we were really honest and open saying we have no idea what we're doing or we've broken something or we don't know what tool we need to fix this and we'd ask our neighbours and they'd say, let me help you, <laughs> you know, so generous. It surprised me, just the generosity of, of, of this country area that we live in. It's a beautiful thing. Mm. It's a beautiful thing and it's interesting because I said to Dave, I said, I'm talking to Emily, is there anything you want to know? And he said, well, my biggest fear about um, stepping into a, uh, stepping into farming would be that we'd be, we'd be doing it alone, you know, uh, as in particularly regenerative farming, that we'd be alone and that that would be really hard because even though we'd be doing it, the system's haven't yet changed and, and, you know, other folks haven't caught on or, you know, there's still a particularly in our area a lot of uh, traditional farming and fruit mm-hmm. growing. Yeah. So it's really beautiful to hear that because that's my instinct is that actually in the resourcefulness that you have to display, that resourcefulness has to come from interdependence, like this idea that 
you take the individualist lens that we've been taught and mm. apply it in a farming sense, particularly a regenerative farming sense, doesn't feel right for me. Like it would have to be you couldn't possibly carry a whole farm on your own. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you, you, that's, I don't think that's possible. And I, I don't think that it should ever be like that no. either. I mean, um, we, we need others um, as much as they need us as well. And I think that that's the exciting part of, of a profession or a vocation like farming is it's not possible for one person to do it. So there's that, um, you know, that interdependence that you mentioned, but there's also that curiosity to see what someone else might know that will surprise you. You know, there've been um, lessons and, and wisdom and advice and, and tools lent to us by conventional farmers, if you like, um, that have been perfect for what we needed and, and there's been things we've been able to just show through doing that have surprised them in good ways and that, that have made them think about how they would manage their pasture or um, care for an animal. And, and so, yeah, I, I think you, you won't know until you start, but it's a beautiful relationship that you strike up when you farm. You, you enter a community and, um, and I think there's room for all of us, you know, even though I'd love to see everyone take a regenerative approach overnight, I think the reality is it will be a process that we move to a more environmentally kind and generative way in Australia. Um, I think we will get there because we will need to, but in this next phase that we're in, there's going to be that... Um, I don't know, it's going to be a slow, um, maybe a slower conversation than we might want at times. Mm. But I, I know that when we have been willing to listen um, to other farmers, they have been willing to listen to us in return yeah. as opposed to, you know, kind of picketing or... <laughs> or grandstanding about why that farming method's terrible or whatever. They'll, they have stories about why they do something the way they do it or why they want to change perhaps, but we all need room for our relationships to grow. So mm, That's such a beautiful um, reminder. And isn't that just the, the truth of it is that we can compost everything that came before, like this, even this idea that we we know best now, like there's going to be, holy moly, mm-hmm. I spoke to some young people yes. and I was like, oh, my God, these folks oh, no. are next level in the way that they think yeah. about the world and the yes. textual analysis they have and the critical thinking, mm-hmm. have, you know, being like we're the pinnacle of, you know, liberal critical thinkers and these guys are like <laughs> phenomenal, you know, in their, yeah. way and things together. Yeah, I mean, and that's probably every generation, mm-hmm. isn't it? You know, probably thinks we have, we've got these new understandings and insights that those before us didn't have. But I think it's always this, um, you know, more like a mosaic that yeah. we lay. Um, we need new voices, challenging voices that are emerging, but we also need the wise voices of the past because they have rich stories and lived experiences to share with us um, and we need those. So, yeah, it's it's very humbling to be part of that process but I think um, you can tell Dave he's not alone. You will not be alone. <laughs> and even in, even in the eight years we've been farming, it's amazing how big the regenerative farming world has grown, yeah. um, even locally, you know, and there are gatherings that happen and there are other things things online that are there to support you and um yeah in some ways we've never been more supported than we are now Mm. um and that's a really a really good thing and there's something actually I thought of that you mentioned earlier (laughs) I hope you don't mind me circling back um where you were talking about embodied embodying this sense of nourishing ourselves and um it made me think what it's like to experience a journey into farming in my body as well as um, 
you know, just in my mind, you know, the timeline of things because just when we started it, you know, eight years ago and we started at Taranaki Farm and I had my one-year-old, I'd actually just been diagnosed with celiac disease and my body was probably at its most tired and worn out and depleted than I could ever remember it. Um, so when I was diagnosed, I was low in everything, you know, um, in my minerals and vitamins and I was had lost a lot of weight and I felt very weak and I had that, you know, new diagnosis as we started farming. And I think that did propel me towards food in a way that maybe I hadn't been as thoughtful about it before. Not that I, I didn't care about what I ate ate and I love to cook but something about knowing what it felt like to not feel right in my body um, sharpened my awareness of what it felt like to be well or to be on a journey of healing um, as I began to farm so that was just something that came to mind and I think it is an ongoing process but it is part of the healing I think is is to experience food in our bodies um, and that process of it. Yeah. So I just. I love that you brought it up because it's something that keeps coming up as well in this season and something that I, I think you and I have spoken about before. Mm -hmm. yep. there's, this, there's this perception, I think, when you're living in a way that is more in air quotes regenerative more nourishing yeah. but that is a that is a value and focus as opposed to say accumulating property mm -hmm. or resources so much as the value and focus that that we will magically have these bodies that are resilient and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and strong and you know like I'm currently limping around I've torn a um, ligament in my knee and I, it's not the case right like I like I still have Mm -hmm. Inflammatory stuff. I still have autoimmune stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I, I grow food and I cook that food and I donate grains and dairy and gluten and all of these things. Like mm. reality is, we still live in systems and structures that are not life giving, and that our bodies carry the intergenerational imprint of that. And mm -hmm. I think that that's humbling for me mm -hmm. as well. In, in you said it before, in that that, that your limitations are humbling and but also liberatory and I think they are for me too like I my body can't just go all day at anything particularly not mm. in front of a screen right but also in around the property that would be my dream to work with the horses all day or mm. you know work with the chickens all day but I I physically can't do that and parent so I guess what I'm curious about is in this journey like how did you balance the needs of the farm and I'm sure about you didn't I'm sure balance is <laughs> not the right word how did you find symbiosis within your relationship with your children and Alex and the community and then also feeling this responsibility to these animals that you were raising and I know you went on to have dogs and now cows mm -hmm. yeah that, that family only grew how did you find that dance mm. Uh, I found it, it was like it was all working until it wasn't working, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I think about three years ago, just before, the year before we moved to the property we're at now, um, and maybe we were at the height of our business at that point in terms of what we were producing. And I'd also started doing workshops yeah. as well um, with yeah. my gluten-free sourdough making workshops and soap making and um, extremely busy. And I'm somebody who does historically overdo things as well <laughs> and then crashes frequently, <laughs> um, but in just a frenetic maker and I love to start new things and I get ideas and I just run with them and then I just collapse and yeah. go how did I do that to myself <laughs> um still and, learning right 35 oh years and I'm still, still making that mistake <laughs> I'm so there with you um which is why I just love everything you offer Meg because it it is just such a beautiful reminder that we are um human we're not <laughs> machines um but I I guess 
there was a point where, and again, that was three years ago, where we thought we can do this. We can buy land. We can start a farm. We thought of this concept that we'd call it the farm that Kyneton built. We'd bring on all these different partners. It would be a community effort. We'd create education spaces. We'd have all the animals. You know, it was this incredibly grand vision um, and we made business plans and we spoke to people. We had lots of meetings and and I started to develop intense anxiety, um, insomnia and just like chest pain and headaches and got to the point where um, at least on one occasion I was driving and I had to just pull over and felt like I couldn't breathe, you know, just a real panic attack which I think you know the Mm. feeling of you feel like you're gonna die you know it's such an intense feeling your body saying you need to stop this is listen to me listen to me I'm trying to tell you something um and that was incredibly difficult to just pay attention to and to say I don't and and even to go to Alex and say I I don't know if this is the right thing Mm. um, right now and I'm struggling. And we had, you know, we weren't sure what to do with that, but we had a few doors close quite quickly and we just took that to be, you know, a sign that that grand vision, it was wonderful that we could dream it up and we could bring people along and we could think big, but we couldn't go beyond that and we had to kind of shrink down again and it was only in that loss really of shrinking down that the opportunity came to come here and to manage this beautiful property um, that is on the edge of Kyneton closer than we could ever ever imagine Um, we don't own it we are managing it and stewarding it for the family that do Um, we brought all our chickens with us and our kids and um and it's a real gift to be here, but to not be here with this stress of immense debt and mortgage and you know, mm-hmm. trying to do all the things. Yeah. And it's sort of been um, a bit of a process for me in the, in, in the last two years of actually pulling back from a lot of things. And, and that's been difficult just one by one to say, I need to pull back from workshops. I need to pull back from baking um, you know, commercially as I was at the time and to kind of pull back and pull back, trusting that there was something to discover in that act of withdrawing and contracting that um, that it was necessary for my well-being and my health and, um, and it has been. So I'm sort of still in that place, but I don't think I answered your question. I'm sorry. No, but I love where we ended up. I love this conversation. I think, you know, we could keep talking all day, but I, I'm conscious that you've got kids and I've got kids, but I mm. tend to. But, you know, this idea of that sometimes, particularly in embodied regeneration, that it's not, that scale is not always upward and that Mm-mm. impact is not always quantifiable and that mm. um, and that linearity is a myth, right? Like I think it's just not how yeah. life works. And I think, well, I think as I grow older what's been so beautiful to remember as I watch these folks, both people that I know and people that I idolise and people that I don't, I highly judge, you know, like watching the whole world <laughs> of humans, you know. Yeah walk through the seasons of life is to realise that everyone has those seasons of needing to go inward and having what is, I mean, when I saw you, we spoke about a little bit, like it's, a, it's an identity death when you have to step away from these things that have come to mm. define you and instead find peace and wholeness within that and, and find out the value of us just as beings, you know, not as productive beings, not as, um, beings that express outwardly, not as beings that are producing anything, but being beings, just living beings, you know. That, mm, uh, mm. That's the journey, right? I think that's mm. the precipice of, I don't know, life is when we can do that and 
be willing to walk toward that with courage as opposed to continue to live our lives in this frantic like race to run away from that mm. moment mm. of um, reckoning yes yes and and it is very countercultural to actually say I choose a seasonal life mm. I choose a life that actually has seasons of waiting and resting of that emerging of playing of maturing of working of celebrating of sharing of withdrawing of you know this is it's it's what our bodies want to do it's what our land wants from us to heal these seasons but we we so often fight that you know we've been given this myth that we can be you know like machines mechanical and just be the same all the time and produce all these things extract all these things and there's no end in sight but actually we all long for permission I believe to stop to rest but also to unfurl and to play and discover um and I think the best thing we can do as a community is to make space for that to say it's totally okay to be resting in this season and to be saying no to something and it's also totally okay to be maturing or to be sharing it's just to do that all the time manic creating phases yes that's right (laughs) should be totally normalized too right like that's how I move it's like there are periods where it's like don't even talk like can't even be really present with my kids because I'm so intensely becoming something yes, that I'm creating. Yes. And I think that yep. should be normalised too. Absolutely. And our kids need to see us mm. in that flow of, of intention and focus on something. I think that's so important as well. But, again, we've got these myths that mothers have to be all the time, you know, present with their children or that love looks like a particular kind of way Um, but actually I think it's about relationship and I love that idea that um, discernment is about seeing knowing and being known Mm. so it's about making choices um, from a place of real awareness and attentiveness to where you are at and where life is happening you know what your space is like where your place is in the world but it's also about being known by others being vulnerable and indeed being known by a place um I think there's so much wisdom that Indigenous people have to tell us about being known by a landscape letting it shape you and speak to you um and you can't do that without letting it see you you know, without being in it through those seasons. And we can't do that from our phone. We actually have to put that away sometimes and just let ourselves be seen as we are. Mm. Um, and that's a challenge, definitely. Such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful thing to, to say and to hear. And it reminds me of um, this documentary I recently watched about the Mustangs actually because I'm on this big wild horse medicine venture at the moment and mm. um, <laughs> it. so much but, but there's this one guy and the way he works with these Mustangs is so beautiful and really spoke a lot to me and he said he learned how to be with them by just being with them in the field and watching how they communicate and that's how he trains them is you know, through the way that they communicate with each other but he said he was, you know, this horse, he's standing in front of this horse in the yard and the horse is rearing and, you know, mm. you know, scared, of course, and a couple of days off the parks and terrified. And, and this man, this really quietly spoken uh, man, just turns the camera and he says, I'm so happy he's showing me all of himself. Like he's not hiding anything, right? It brings me to tears mm. to think about mm. that that's, that's what, the natural world does right is that it doesn't look away it doesn't turn away it's not triggered by all no. our wildness of all mm. of who we are it's 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 gonna love us through like all of us nature accepts all of us as we are and I think that that um doing that finding the courage to do that in place and then finding the courage to do that in relationship like that's going to change the world I really believe that yeah me too me too
So I'm curious as we come to the end, where did you land? So there was this inward, I love the chronology here, there was this inward movement. And then when I saw you recently, you were like, this is my veggie patch, my one veggie patch, like one, there's <laughs> tiny, one tiny little tree veggie. And yes. One, yes. yes. Yeah. So there's one veggie patch and then the boys are at school. And yes. You've yeah. got cows now. Where did you land yes. and what next do you feel? Um, yeah, well, where we landed was we actually stopped doing the meat chicken. So we've just got our beautiful laying hen um, flock of, of two flocks of about 250 each, which is, sounds large, but it's pretty small in this egg-producing world. Um, but they just move about on the pasture following the cows um, and doing their beautiful job at fertilising the pasture and giving us gorgeous eggs. Um, so our business has shrunk to that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and my garden is small but manageable and full of flowers that the bees love to feast on. Um, and in this last year, I, and I know I've to- told you about this before, Meg, but I, I made the decision at the beginning of this year to leave social media mm-hmm. um, after a lot of years of investment in just creative energy as well as a lot of inspiration um, in people that I followed and um, engagement there and sharing of recipes and produce and stories and I just sensed um, you know I just got this image at the beginning of the year of being like an accordion big Mm. old dusty accordion (laughs) that was just stretched out to its capacity and that just longed to be pushed back in for a bit Um, and I think I always knew that it wasn't going to stay that way, but I wasn't sure what sort of tune it would, you know, extend out or ooze out into. Um, And part of that has been actually writing a newsletter each month um, that I send from my website, Savour the Seasons, which is really just a seasonal letter, love letter to to, on a theme, you know, um, and that's just an opportunity to do something that I've always dreamed of, which is to write more and a place to put some words and poems and photographs that isn't to sell something, that isn't to, you know, isn't a means to an end as much as just a place to express myself creatively. And that's been unexpectedly pleasurable. Like I, yeah, I because when you have to mun and hive and extract something all the time, it is pleasurable. Yeah, and it's and also that it doesn't. It's not like an Instagram post that you spend a lot of time writing, and it's mm. gone in a day. You know, it's like you, I spend a month with it, sort of as a soup in my mind, and mm. and um, and put it together, and that's kind of leading to some other things maybe in the new year. Um, I've been doing more in my local community, which I've loved and um, been part of a women's circle that I facilitate creative space for women to tell stories and to um, just reflect contemplatively on life and the seasons. And, um, yeah, I've been asked to uh, run a sort of mini Um, workshop series next year on the seasons which again I'm so excited to do it's um something that I've I've I probably wouldn't have been ready to do even a year ago or two years ago but I think having taken the space taken that time away from um trying to do all the things and contracting a bit I found um new creative juice (laughs) just you know uh, new little I don't know if juice is the right word but little little plants that are unfurling in me that are saying yeah that are saying I I want to teach and I want to um facilitate other people's journeys in some way possibly um and and use those creative tools but also that love of place and land and food somehow in there I don't know it's it's Mm. it's not clear where it's going but I'm I'm delighted to be on the journey and and I think in hindsight um with all the lockdowns and the struggle 
of this year, which has been difficult on the farm as well. Every lockdown means no cafes want their eggs and, um, you know, there's beautiful people like you that, that, are, that are able to use eggs to serve the community, which I love. Um, but I think my, I'm glad that I followed my gut that said step back from something that's taking up a lot of your time because it has given me some fresh pockets of time to just sink myself into and, um, and I feel well, more well because of it. Mm. Well, I'm delighted to be on the journey with you and witnessing you and alongside you and, you know, to see what little seeds emerge um, but also, you know, knowing your beauty and wholeness, seed, seedlings or no seedlings. Um, mm. Yeah, so I'm so appreciative of this conversation. I've loved it, nourished by it. I'm sure everyone listening will be too. Oh, thank you, Meg. And I, I feel the same way about you. I'm just so grateful for what you bring to our community and to this world. It is, it is so refreshing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs>